Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the Classical Queer Podcast. Sammy and I are very thrilled today uh, to introduce you to Stuart Beach, who's a composer um, and uh, a lovely Canadian uh, fellow as well. And so uh, we always start, Stuart, with a bit of a bio intro, uh, however you want to phrase it. I usually say you can be as uh, music-y as you like, non-music-y as you like, academic-y as you like, or non-academic-y as you like. Um, but tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you kind of exist, how you uh, make your art, and we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, it's great being here, and thank you for having me. Um, so I um, I started out in my musical journey um, uh, actually, I, I did music education in university, and um, I had been composing for for a long time since I was a teenager. Uh, but it was it really wasn't until I finished that degree that I realized, no, this is where I want to take my my career. This is what I want to do. Um, I ended up going back to school, uh, doing another degree in composition at the University of Alberta here in Edmonton. Um, and uh, then went on to do my master's in London, England at King's College London, which was a great experience and really eye-opening uh, in helping me kind of refine my craft. Uh, and it also helped build a lot of really important connections for me. Um, when I was doing my grad studies, I ended up becoming composer in residence for the Fourth Choir, which is a queer chamber choir in London. Um, and that really helped guide me towards this niche of writing kind of explicitly queer choral and vocal music, which has um, really been the theme of what I've been focusing on for the past five years, I would say. Um, in 2018, I moved back to Canada. Uh, I've been living in Edmonton ever since. Um, formerly had a job as the program coordinator for Choir Alberta, which uh, ended up, you know, again, helping me build lots of connections in the community uh, and have now moved on to a cushy corporate job and I'm just enjoying having the space in my life to continue writing music, singing, uh, and exploring myself in all of uh, these art forms. Fantastic. I, I should also say that uh, I was introduced to your work through a, uh, a choir that I sit on the board for. So here in, in Nova Scotia on the other side of the country, um, I sit on the board for it's called Choirs for Change. It's a social justice uh, based choir. And uh, I think it was two or three concerts ago, our uh, main conductor, Ryan, um, programmed one of your pieces. Uh, and so I thought, I like that. That's a really beautiful piece. It was very well done. Congrats to the choir as well. Um, and so I, I started following you on uh, social media stuff and uh, started listening to your, your other choral music. So it's exciting to hear that you do a lot of uh, queer choir, queer vocal stuff, um, aside from what I heard in general. So this is, this is great. Yeah. Thank you. And, and it's also just really gratifying to know, you know, when my music has kind of a wider reach, um, you know, I was really excited when, when Ryan ended up programming that piece, uh, I am like many, um, and, um, and one excerpt of that, the letter has now been published by Cypress Choral Music here in Canada and has, has been getting a bit more of uh, uh, attraction as of late. Um, but that was actually one of my first commissions with, uh, with the fourth choir in the UK. And so that 
yeah, as I said, has really kind of continued to push me in that direction and, and has shown me really how um, writing music that's explicitly queer, that is about, you know, my experience, the experiences of people in our community um, has been really meaningful to the people performing it and programming it and hearing it in the audience. Um, and it has been some of the most um, gratifying artistic collaborations for me, I think. Can I ask a question about, um, you obviously specialize in choral music. Is this kind of something you always had a, a sort of a feel for? Or, did, or, or was it kind of one of those things you kind of fell into? It's kind of interesting how you came to specialize in, in this particular genre. Yeah, I definitely fell into it. I was actually a trumpet player growing up. Uh, and so I was very much in the instrumental world, played in wind ensemble, orchestra, all of that, all through university. Um, and it wasn't until I started studying composition here in Edmonton, um, and it wasn't even the composition degree that got me thinking about choral music. It was actually at the same time I started singing with an Anglican church choir. Uh, my husband and I are both religious, uh, and we he ended up getting kind of scouted um, by the music director from uh, who just came to the university looking for extra basses. Um, and so he got pulled into the choir, and then shortly after, so did I. Uh, but really getting kind of immersed in that repertoire, kind of the English choral tradition was so influential in my own development uh, and really pushed me, um, I think, both musically and just kind of, um, I just started to discover my own sound through that music mm. uh, and finding a lot of inspiration in it. Um, and I still sing with that same cathedral choir now. I mean, we went obviously overseas and came back. Uh, but it's been a great, great learning experience for me. And also just as an artist, getting to getting to sing is the best kind of training you can have as a composer, I think. Yeah, very, very true. Mm. You, you mentioned something there, which, which, which I just would like to sort of follow up a little bit. You mentioned the sort of English choral tradition. I guess maybe for people who aren't familiar with choral music or, or understand what, what, what kind of what is that and how, how is it? How is it different from, say, like, you know, a Germanic choral tradition or anything else? What's its sort of speciality there? Of course. Uh, I mean, we did a lot of, we do a lot of Renaissance music, you know, things like um, Thomas Tallis. Um, um, oh, my God, my mind is blank. Bird, William Bird. <laughs> Bird, thank you. Yeah. Uh, um, but also... Uh, modern British composers, people like Stanford, Perry, Britain. Um, and I think what I've always loved about this music is the economy and the way that they're, um, they're very restrained in kind of their expression. Um, everything is very, um, very well constructed, very elegant. Uh, and I think that's, those are kind of things that I've always strived for in my own music. Um, and, um, to a certain extent, you know, it's also impacted by the setting, right? The cathedral choirs are um, both, uh, you know, this is music that has to be done quickly uh, and also on a short rehearsal time, so it has to be easily performed. Um, and um, and also it pretty conservative space, we'll say as well, um, musically and otherwise. Uh, but at the same time, I, I did find uh, a great deal of inspiration in singing that music and, and really trying to draw on those same 
inspiration in what I do. It's kind of interesting because I mean, I used to sing in the choir at school, as most people probably did, and kind of, you know, I was never a, never a great singer, but when you're in a, a cathedral or a, or a very big church or something, there is something, and I'm not a spiritual person at all, but there is something quite amazing about the space, I think, when when you start to sing in a space like that. And, and it kind of, I guess with the very, I would say puritanical, I don't know if it's the right word of English choral music, it kind of, it kind of suits that, that space, I think. Definitely. And there's, there's definitely a purity, I would say, in, in kind of how they express themselves in their music. Um, and it's also been really inspiring. So the church that I sing with here in Edmonton, um, All Saints Cathedral, uh, has also been a really great performing space for choirs, just putting on concerts in the community. And so a lot of my music has been premiered in that space, you know, um, going back all, you know, seven years now. Um, and we do still with the cathedral choir itself sing some of my music, uh, including, you know, just little things that I've written for liturgical moments. Uh, you know, getting sung every Sunday by our little cathedral choir is really, really rewarding, I would say. It's funny, it's interesting you mentioned the, uh, like the uh, clarity and the, I don't, I don't want to say austereness of, of like talisman, but there is, there is something really um, clean and uh obvious in the most beautiful way about that music and like you say it's it's part of uh being able to put it together very fast and and you have you know uh, several services a week and you have to keep going and pr produce new things but i think one of the the parts that i really enjoy about your music uh so much is there a lot of like modern choral music and this isn't a slander anybody obviously but there's so much like um unnecessary density or unnecessary um clash for the sake of clash or, or uh, tightness for the sake of tightness. And I really don't find that in your music. It's so free flowing. It's so um, uh, open, but not uh, open, but not devoid of complexity. Maybe that's a, a good way of, of putting it. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on how you write that, that way. Like, how do you take uh, what you sing, what you love, what you experience and, and put it into your voice now. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you. I, I'm glad that my music has that, has that impression on you. It didn't always. Uh, and I definitely have a few things in my catalog that are much, much too dense. Um, I actually, I, I shared on Instagram a few weeks ago, my ultimate rejection letter that I got about six or seven years ago, um, which was for a piece, which is, to be fair, much too complex, too dense, too difficult. Everything could be improved. Um, but one thing that this reviewer said back to me was that, um, yeah, it sounds as if you've just added, um, you know, uh, added two and sharp four just for the fun of it, not because anything was actually prepared in the music itself. And at the time I was like, oh, rude, but also, <laughs> you know, it's also true. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like maybe that rejection letter to a certain extent has pushed me even more to, to find that economy, to really um, get away from um, 
adding too much texture, adding too much detail, and really just wanting to uh, find a clarity of sound. Um, it's definitely been a learning curve over time, I would say. Um, but for me, kind of the most important thing has always been going back to the text and trying to amplify the meaning of the words and um, trying to do so in a way that doesn't get my own kind of ego in the way. Um, you know, as you say, the the trend in choral music for the past 25 years, we'll say, has been to let's mm, add lots of um, extensions on the harmony. Let's make it nice and dense. Let's, and it sounds pretty if you can pull it off. Um, but I've, I've really tried to, um, I've really tried to take inspiration, I would say actually from Britain as one of my major, um, one of my favorite composers, who I think does not put a note out of place. I, it really is kind of just exactly as many notes as are needed to express what he wants to express and nothing more. Um, we sang one of his, um, so the choir that I sing with, Kronos, here in Edmonton, we sang uh, his setting of Psalm 100, Jubilate Deo, at a concert just last month. One of my all-time favorite pieces, specifically because it is very clear, very bare bones, very simple, but there's still a complexity. There's still harmonic kind of tinges that you don't expect. There are turns of phrase that don't go where you expect them to go. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just try to... Um, I try to play those same tricks. I try to write music that I know I would enjoy singing and that I would enjoy hearing. And I try not to let, as I said, my own ego get in the way of trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, one of the things I really liked when listening to your music is that, uh, I mean, in addition to it being what I would call quite clear, which I think is what we're, we're talking about here, is also it, it kind of moved on. I mean, in the sense that I do find some choral music tends to be um it, it doesn't move anywhere I, I it kind of we kind of get so much repetition and so much sort of thing that you actually end up singing the same thing 500 times and, and it kind of gets very complex but what i found with your pieces it actually it moved somewhere you know it was it had a it had a start a middle and an end and it was going somewhere and it was telling a story and i kind that i kind of liked rather than just having as you say maybe the things for the sake of having lots of different harmonics and things. And so, so, I mean, how, how do you develop these stories? I mean, you know, if we take one of your pieces, how do you actually think, okay, this is what I want to get over. This is the message. Yeah. It, I feel like it changes for every piece that I write. Um, one tactic that I always go back to is just really printing out the text and then taking a pencil to it and saying, what do I want the structure of this piece to look at? What is this section going to be here? Um, you know, say I'm working with a three stanza poem. Well, okay, how is this going to develop? Um, it might be that I, you know, square off the middle stanza. I say, okay, this is going to be slightly faster. This is going to be the change of texture. This is going to be a change of rhythm. Or I might just start adding kind of descriptors to what I want the music to sound like. You know, okay, this will be lush. This will be full. Maybe this will be a little bit more sparse, uh, more stoic. Um, and I feel like uh, just that process of really thinking through what's the pacing, what's the dramatic flow of a piece going to be is really important to me because as you say, this, I, I feel like the worst sin that you can commit as a composer is boring people. And I'd say that's true of any art form really that like 
at the very least, let's entertain people or let's give them something enjoyable to to listen to. Um, and so for me, uh, really getting um, the pacing of a piece down is is really important. And um, yeah, and, and definitely it, it, my tactics have to change depending on what the piece is. And of course, depending on the scope of the piece as well, you know, you approach a two minute choral piece differently than a 15 minute one, for example. Um, but, but also yeah. in the story itself, I mean, I mean, you know, we're going to listen to, I think, three pieces, I think, today. And, and um, if we take like the first piece, so I, I'm not going to introduce it already, but like the, uh, a boy and a boy. Um, I mean, so, so where did that story come from? I mean, it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested in the story and, and how you thought that that's what I that's what I'd like to to have. That's the sort of story I want to tell. Yeah, this was actually this there's a long kind of backstory to that piece in particular, um, which is uh, my friend Matthew Stepanek, who's a poet and who I've collaborated with quite extensively. Um, he was involved in uh, opening a bookshop here in Edmonton. And part of the kind of Kickstarter fundraising campaign was that you could donate $100 and get a free poem, which I was like, okay, that sounds, that's perfect for me. Um, and so I did. And I said, what I would really love is a queer version of A Boy and a Girl, which is, you know, very famously set by Eric Whitaker um, and a very sparse poem. You know, it's very short, three stanzas, um, and very concise in uh, what it's expressing, but, you know, kind of narrating this love story uh, from life to death. And I said, this would be really great if I could have a version about two boys. Um, and he said, great, and took it away and delivered a beautiful little story, um, which is quite, you know, it's more expansive than the original text. Um, but then my challenge was that I really wanted this to be again, not to let my ego get in the way. I just wanted to express the beauty and the poetry. I wanted to create a beautiful little love song and have that be all it is. Um, and, um, and it's interesting the response that that piece has gotten as well, because I feel like um, the people who get it really get it. Uh, that, um, you know, I posted a, a score video of this on my YouTube channel, and it's gotten an incredibly positive response from people all over, um, including, you know, one person from Hawaii who commented that, that, you know, they were so grateful that they could see a reflection of themselves in the music that I was writing, um, which is, you know, that's the most gratifying thing you could hear as a composer, I think. Um, and then on the opposite side of the spectrum, I learned after the premiere that two singers had actually pulled out of the concert because they didn't want to sing a piece that went against their values. Mm -hmm. So it's, which is, you know, I haven't figured out who those two, two people are and I don't really want to know because this is, this is a choir that I've collaborated with so many times and people who have sung so many pieces of mine that it, it's, it's both offensive and um, just also like, I don't even want to know I don't want to know. I just, it's frustrating. Um, and then um, submitted this piece to a publisher recently as well and was told, oh, it's so great that you're, uh, it, it, we're telling queer stories and all of that. If only this piece was more original and less derivative, then we would know how to market it and we could do something with it. You know, so sorry. <laughs> you don't get it. 
Hmm. Um, and what's been interesting is despite having received that, um, the, there are, well, a performance just happened um, by the University of British Columbia this past weekend. Um, Biska Intima is performing it at the, in Vancouver at the end of uh, April. The Fourth Choir is also performing it in London uh, at Shakespeare's Globe this April. Uh, and I have at least two other choirs who are interested in doing it as well, specifically because it is a take on a piece that they already know. It's something that's new, that is queer focused, that is something that they haven't heard before. And it's also just a lovely little love song. And so it's been nice to have that kind of response, as I said, from the people who do get it. Um, and and uh, hopefully I get to see this piece have more legs in the in the months ahead. Yeah, I don't know what to say about you know. It's it's it, you you hear these stories and we all know them and we've all got these these things we can say and 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 you just want to go. What is wrong with people who don't want to 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 actually hear about love between two people? It's it's you know it's just desperately sad. But I think it's a lovely piece and 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 it really hits home and i think it's a you've done a great job with it i don't take jacob I, i'm sure you've got some things to say about it as well i think it was lovely i do i mean it is, it is lovely it's also i i tend to think i maybe i just i i like to push buttons maybe a little too too much but i i I run on the track of it's not for you then and then <laughs> you know it's I have also I, I run a, a a queer orchestra here, and and we have uh, had people um, leave performances or or things, and it's it it is hurtful on on a lot of levels, and I also think great leave like <laughs> off you go. This isn't for you. This is uh, for for everybody else who would love to sing it, play it, hear it, witness it, uh, experience it. Uh, ingested however however it is and and you know it is sad it is terribly sad but what i think is really sad for people is uh, you don't get to experience this beautiful thing like that's so sad for you it's not sad that you're i mean it is sad that you're homophobe that's that's that is sad but it's also <laughs> sad that you can't like uh, experience this beautiful piece of music you know it's uh, my partner andrew always says you know uh, how how brutal it is for somebody to walk through life being so angry. It must be just be exhausting. It's so sad and exhausting to be that angry at, at anything, you know? Um, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, there's lots of choirs who are singing it. There's lots of people who really find a lot of joy in it. And it's, uh, and it is a beautiful piece. And I think it's uh, high time we listen to it. So let's, let's have a listen to A Boy and a Boy.
so that was that was a boy and a boy and i and i think it's um i think what what is really on a deeper level of of interest for this piece in particular for those people who are um I don't even think you need to be a choral music aficionado, but the, you know, a choral music lover, it is uh, like a wonderfully subversive new take on something that is such a famously set piece by Eric Whitaker, whether or not you love it or not, whether or not you like Eric Whitaker or not. Um, it is, it is a, a very well-known version of it. And I really love that you chose to uh, take that, that inspiration, of the original poem, the original uh, text, and then the, the new setting and the new the new text, and and provide a really different uh, interpretation of it. I think there's there's something really um, fantastic about uh, kind of that underlying layer of critical to it. Yeah, I I mean I do love the original the original piece. And I feel like it's one of Eric Whitaker's that is more restrained in, you know, mm. the amount of complexity and kind of what he's, he's trying to do in that music. Um, but I also, I really intentionally wanted this to be different, um, which is part of why I was so offended that it would be called unoriginal and derivative, but that's beside mm. the point. Um, you know, I purposefully did not listen to it for, you know, the entire time I was working on this piece. I really wanted this to stand on its own and to just be a new a new take on the the ideas of that original poem um and you know it's made so much easier by the wonderful text by by matthew um and he's been a wonderful wonderful poet to work with uh and i think the way that he works with words is is uh really beautiful and elegant as well it's something we we kind of come across with anytime we talk to vocal choral uh and vocalists and and singers as well is that uh text is such a an important part of obviously relaying message and relaying narrative and uh telling a story that i mean some of us in the, the like orchestral world and like performance world kind of lose for sure um but i think specifically for queer stories it's such a an evocative and direct way uh, to access that. And what are you, what are your thoughts on um, text inspiration and like working with a like a living poet versus uh, drawing text from elsewhere, uh, or or in one of your other pieces, um, uh, drawing text from a, a place that wasn't explicitly written for setting of music. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's as a composer of vocal music, I'm constantly on the lookout for for poetry that speaks to me. Um, and I've spent a lot of time, especially in the last couple of years, just kind of you know, buying chapbooks, looking at, um, you know, queer poets that are especially Canadian working right now in the community um, and trying to find, um, yeah, these stories that speak to me. Um, Matthew has been a wonderful collaborator, um, just in that, you know, he's been so forthcoming with his works that, you know, haven't been published, just providing me with manuscripts and things to read and things to work with on his own. Um, but then also, um, as you say, in some of my other projects, it's also just involved uh, research and, and trying to kind of create the text myself. Um, so with I Am Like Many, which was the, the first commission I had from the fourth choir, the specific brief of that commission was that um, it was in collaboration with Senate House Library at the University of London, and they were doing an exhibition of queer texts. 
Um, and that was to celebrate, well, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the passing of the Sexual Offenses Act in the UK, uh, which legalized homosexuality. And um, so basically they just said, you know, here's the exhibition, like find something, <laughs> which was, you know, everything from um, books that had been banned and confiscated and censored or, uh, you know, just random materials that they had in their collection that they had dug up. Um, but what I was drawn to was this collection of newspaper file, uh, uh, newspaper clippings that they had uh, from it, when uh, actually predating the Sexual Offenses Act. This was 1958 when the Wolfenden Report was being debated in UK Parliament. And this was the first time that homosexuality was ever proposed to be decriminalized. Uh, and it was unsuccessful, of course. Um, but it was a really uh, incredible moment in time that suddenly um, this was being debated openly in Parliament and, and not, you know, being hidden away, not being spoken of in, in kind of code, but really being said that this is what's happening right now. They presented a report saying this is the activities, these, this is the impact on society. It needs to be decriminalized. And of course, you know, politicians doing as they do uh, then throw it off the rails. But what I was really um, drawn to for this piece was, you know, looking at these newspaper clippings, um, trying to pull together a narrative of, you know, what was this moment in time? Can I create a snapshot of, um, of this moment, um, both in how it was discussed in the media, but then also looking at the transcripts from the debates themselves, what was said by these politicians? Um, and then, um, finding this uh, letter, um, which became the final movement of that piece, the letter, um, which was uh, an anonymous letter from a gay man written to one of the MPs, basically just pleading for understanding and for tolerance by the lawmakers uh, as they were debating this law. Um, and then I took some liberties as well. Um, throughout the piece, I incorporated um, excerpts from this much older poem called Don Leon, which was formerly attributed to Byron. Um, so dating from the late 1800s and actually making many of the same arguments for the legalization of homosexuality a hundred years earlier, and in a very eloquent, very um, well-researched, uh, well-grounded manner, a very, very fascinating piece of poetry. And so I just took, you know, bits and pieces of that and incorporated it, including in this last movement. Um, but that was a really interesting project because it really was creating the whole structure of the piece by myself, kind of imagining what I wanted to do, pulling all the pieces together, uh, and then working with Seamus at the fourth choir to, um, to kind of come to a final libretto, I suppose we'll say, um, that ended up becoming, becoming the final piece. I mean, those, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Again, we talk a bit about history here and, and the thing that, you know, this happened in, in 1958, the first discussion, as you said, and then later on, you know, it was, it was legalized. And then we had a load of laws passed, stopping the teaching of these things in schools and this kind of thing. And it's this continual back and forth between you know, given some rights, rights taken away, given some things taken away again. And, and we seem to go and, and, and you, as you said, you know, you see the same narrative a hundred years earlier and you see it 50 years and 30, you see the same narratives come time and time again. And, and 
kind of I, I think this piece hits home in the sense of this you know I'm like many people you know that there's there's many queer people and it's kind of we have to sit there and write these things to actually get noticed and it, it's kind of so so I think the piece is, is brilliant and it must have been a fantastic um experience to look at that and go back in time yeah absolutely and it was really um it was a really gratifying collaboration with the choir as well that was my first commission as i said and getting to hear them sing these words and getting to see kind of the emotional impact that it had for them getting to perform this story and on the audience getting to hear this story told um you know that for me really made it clear that this is the direction i want to go these are the kind of stories i want to be able to tell through my music and these are the kind of people I want to do it with. You know, I want to make music with all of these amazing queers and just um, create wonderful works of art together that that are important to us and to tell these important stories. And and as you say, like, uh, if we don't tell these stories, if they aren't getting heard, then how quickly are they forgotten? Um, you know, it's it's important to have visibility and be able to to be blunt about who we are and to make art about it yeah i think there's something really uh powerful about you say making making this music with a a, a bunch of queers who want to make this music for people who want to hear it i think there's something really powerful about these uh queer exclusive spaces that are artistic and creative and uh i think it's it's really interesting when people encounter them for the first time, like the first time you go to a, uh, a queer festival of some sort or a, a queer performance creation based, whatever, uh, of some sort. I think about, uh, you know, the person who joins a queer choir for the first time and it's their first moment where they're, uh, not only singing something queer, but with an entirely queer room of people. Um, and I, I guess it loops back to my, my, my sentiment of like it's not for everybody it's not it's not designed for um maybe the outside world i mean there's certainly something really important about telling the story for people who uh wouldn't hear it otherwise for sure um but i think there's also something really profound and beautiful about uh telling that story to each other and for each other you know um and this uh the choir that that you were writing this for and working with um give me tell us a bit about them as as an entity like what what's their um their kind of history and and breadth and size and makeup yeah so they were a chamber choir founded i believe 10 years ago in 2013 but maybe don't quote me on that um uh and their mandate was to be uh <clears throat> an auditioned chamber choir um you know, queer inclusive, not necessarily needing to identify as queer, but that was really their mandate was to tell these stories and to really be focused on the commissioning and creation of new music that was explicitly queer. Um, so their composer in residence that predated me, Alex Campion, they commissioned a number of works from him. Um, and uh, they commissioned three works from me on a variety of kind of gender and sexuality related topics. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I did have a moment like you like you mentioned of uh, going to one of their concerts and really feeling that experience of being in the room of really feeling um, represented, included, safe. Um, 
I, I remember distinctly going to hear them perform at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, which is part of Shakespeare's Globe, kind of this small candlelit Tudor theater. Um, and, you know, I was standing way at the back, but it just like, as just hearing the music and, and seeing these performers on stage, something about that, that whole experience was just filled me with so much positive energy and, um, and yeah, really made me happy to be associated with them for sure. Um, so I, I believe technically my role as composer in residence with them ended in 2020, uh, but they haven't appointed anybody new. So I'm going to keep saying that I am <laughs> still uh, technically. They're finding a new artistic director at the moment. So I think that's probably more of an important priority for them. Um, but, uh, you know, they do a lot of performances across London in a lot of really unique venues. Um, they performed actually this same piece uh, in uh, Heaven, the gay, the gay nightclub Heaven in London uh, on the anniversary of the Stonewall riots in, hmm. uh, in 2019, I believe it was. Um, and so I, I think they're incredibly unique and, uh, and audacious and what they do is, is really exciting. Uh, and they do it all with really kind of top tier artistic integrity. Um, uh, not to degrade any queer choir that is, you know, will sing show tunes together, but they are very much, you know, a chamber choir that wants to perform at a high, at a high level. Uh, and, and it's been so exciting for me as a composer to be able to work with them. That, that that space in the the, the Wanamaker Theatre thing is absolutely fantastic, and I, and I can understand how that would have had a big effect because it is a lovely space, and and as you say, it feels it feels comfortable. It's kind of a comfortable thing to be in. I think it's fantastic. So that that sounds sounded sounds sound beautiful. I'm sure there. So, so. Yeah, and they'll be performing a boy and a boy in that same space in oh. April as well. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, I can't be there, but you know, yeah. I'll be there in spirit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Do we want to, um, shall we have a take a listen to um, I Am Like Many? Yeah, do, do let's have a listen. Hear? Yeah, let's take a listen to that and then we can talk more.
So before we talk about your uh, last piece that you uh, sent forward, can you, uh, I mean, we've listened to two choral pieces. Um, tell us a bit about uh, the difference in writing choral versus writing vocal, solo vocal, um, accompanied yeah. chamber. What What are your thoughts on, um, and maybe maybe for like the, the, the non-theorists who, who listen, like what, what does it, uh, how does it change for you to think about uh, structure, harmony, form, uh, how things kind of get put together when you're writing for um, uh, like unified sound, choir, unaccompanied, uh, and then soloist with accompaniment? It's definitely been a learning curve for me. Um, I, I've had far more experience in the choral world. You know, going into art song has kind of been a new territory for me. Um, I found that actually my approach hasn't really changed a great deal, that the idea of working with a choir as an instrument itself, um, for me then going to just a solo voice was not much of a change. You know, my approach to text setting um, is, is very similar. I feel like the biggest change for me is just the approach to texture. What what can you do with a solo voice and piano is very different, of course. Um, and trying to create, um, you know, a, an interesting narrative flow, interesting musical content. Um, there's a lot you can do with a piano. There's a lot you can do with just one singer. Um, and uh, I certainly haven't explored the extent of that, but this project in particular, um, um, so the the larger cycle that it's from, um, still running, was really um, a great challenge for me just in exploring kind of pianistic texture, uh, you know, what can I do, um, how much drama and, um, and, yeah, and musical interest can I milk out of this? Uh, and it ends up becoming quite a, an angry piece by the end. Um, you know, the cycle itself is about contemporary queer issues. It talks about things like um, growing up gay in a small town. It talks about, you know, hookup culture. Uh, it talks about, you know, uh, um, dating apps. And it also, the last song talks about the Pulse shooting in 2016. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of gay fury, uh, especially in the last song. Um, but the, the song that I, that I've sent you to, to share today preserves is kind of the one moment of, of queer joy in this cycle, that it really is just kind of, um, celebrating a moment of, of two men together on a date and it's just sweet and happy. And it might be, I think one of the prettiest things I've ever written, um, but um, yeah, writing this cycle definitely took a lot out of me, uh, both technically and emotionally. I would say. I must admit, when I read it, when I was when I was reading the sort of the background to it, and that, and I saw contemporary issues, Pulse nightclub shooting, I was thinking, this is going to be hard, and this, and it was this 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 lovely piece, this piece, you know, and it was kind of it was kind of not what I was expecting to be honest, but it is a sort of a lovely moment, I guess, in amongst the. Uh, the chaos and the the negativity of things. Um, so so I mean, how did how did this particular thing come about? I mean, did, is this? I, I don't. I'm not trying to pry, but is this like a, 
personal experience or is this a generic experience or is it a kind of, you know, this is what I've heard from talking to people experience is, is you know, I, I, I'm not trying to probe, but how personal are these things you write to you? I mean, is that kind of, do you, do you understand what I mean? I'm not trying yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it, in the case of this cycle, it was really driven by the poetry. So this was again, uh, working with Matthew Stepanek. Um, and it was a cycle that was commissioned by my friend, Tim Carter, who's a tenor studying at the University of Victoria. So this was for his final master's recital as part of that degree. And, uh, you know, he really wanted something that spoke to contemporary career issues. And um, it was just a matter of going to Matthew and saying, you know, what do you have? <laughs> and um, we parsed through his collection of, of poems and we kind of pulled together these six songs that we thought would make kind of a, a solid narrative. Um, so that they're all, you know, unrelated poems, um, but I, I felt like kind of the trajectory of, of the story that they tell is, um, is kind of unified in a way. Um, the choice of putting this very sweet song uh, in the cycle was, was very intentional. Uh, we put it, you know, it's the penultimate song in the cycle. It's right before, the song about Pulse. And um, we did that more so because we we wanted to have a moment of reprieve, for sure. But we also wanted to have kind of that um, uh, emotional impact of saying, yes, we can be joyful. Yes, we have these uh, sweet moments in our lives, but there is still the reality that we need to face. Um, and Tim made the very um, audacious choice to put this at the end of his recital. Um, so the cycle ends on a big cliffhanger, emotionally fraught moment. Uh, and that was the end because he wanted to make a clear statement of saying, this is the reality of what we're still living with as queer people. Uh, the the uh, recital that he did as a whole was very personal to his own experiences. Yeah. And um, I think he didn't want to end on a happy note because he didn't feel it was appropriate. And so this cycle doesn't either. Mm. Um, but, but did you, but when you write the music to this, when you actually put it together, I guess the question I've got is, is, it's difficult for somebody who doesn't write music. So, so kind of, excuse me if I don't get it right, but how much of your, your, you know, and Jacob will jump in here. How much of your personal experience and self is in that, if you know what I mean? I mean, obviously, yeah. like, it is an experience. It is your personal feeling. But I, but I guess you, do you sort of feel like, okay, I'm going to put uh, this joy into it, that I've got this joy for this, and I've got this angst for this. I mean, uh, does, does that make sense? Am I making any sense yeah. at all? I'm not quite yeah, yeah. sure I am. But... No, I mean... Um... Yeah, to, to a certain extent, it's it's um, emotions that I felt for sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've lived a very privileged life, I would say, in, in the amount of discrimination and the amount of challenges that I've had to face in my life. I feel very, very lucky. Um, and so to a certain extent, it's drawing on how I know people feel and how I know, especially in the case of Pulse, you know, what is the reality that we're dealing with here? Um, and and those are emotions that I feel kind of indirectly, I would say. Um, but you know, these are uh, you know I've I've experienced love, I've experienced discrimination. You know, these kind of more general um, uh, 
experiences that we all go through in life as queer people um, are definitely in the music for sure. Um, and then just trying to apply those into this more specific story that we're trying to tell. I think there's something uh, musically fascinating about how you translate uh, an emotion into like pitch. And I think, you know, as, as somebody, I mean, Sammy and I talk about this all the time, like uh, living in the soup of queer performance all the time, like we're maybe a little too deep in to, to have any real perspective, but I think there's, um, there's a different lexicon that I think people can draw on uh, from having different experiences. And I think what that translates to a lot of times in like nuts and bolts pitch on paper is, you know, what, what you write as joyful sound is not going to be and isn't what somebody else who hasn't had the experiences that you've had in personal or within a larger community that what, what joyful sounds like is not the same or what, um, difficult and troubled sounds like is not the same. And I find it really interesting that, uh, was it Tim, the, the vocalist who mm -hmm. premiered this, that it, I, I understand that impulse to not want to end on a happy, joyful, traditionally joyful note. But at the same time, I also understand that what sounds like terrifying, dense, uh, fraught, uh, in tight music to somebody else, if you've had a different set of experiences, you may not read it that way. And I, I mean, I haven't listened to the full cycle necessarily, but it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, what is that self that you're putting into the actual, uh, pitch and rhythm and, and, uh, notes on a page is a different set of emotions and sounds. And, it, and it's interesting how it translates. Absolutely. I feel like, um, you know, as a composer, I, I try not to do anything that I feel is too conventional, that is too kind of on the nose or obvious. Um, but I, I agree with you that I feel like the way that we express these emotions is very much informed by, by our experience. That, um, yeah, the, I'm expressing joy in this piece, but it's still very um, uh, emotion, very rhythmically complex. There are kind of moments of almost erratic, uh, unpredictability um, and the the climax in this song I mean it's also kind of a it's a musical orgasm basically but it, the climax is also has some um, uh, um, dissonance to it is the word I was looking for <laughs> um, has some dissonance has some notes that don't quite fit um, and uh, and actually, this was, I should also say, this was the first song I wrote in this whole cycle. Um, the opening motif that you hear at the start of the song um, was the, were the very first notes that I wrote. And um, I feel like really kind of informed the, the sound world of the piece as a whole and kind of the, the scope of emotions that I wanted to express and, and the, the ways that I was going to go about it.
it's it's kind of interesting you say that because I kind of you know and, and maybe this is what we're saying here and, and I kind of paraphrase it into my own experience is that it's uh it's like we always have this balance between the joy and the despair if you like there's always this sort of even in the just joyous moments there's always this little bit of thing in the background which is like oh gosh it's going to go sad or something's going to go wrong or something's going to happen or something's going to be like this and and it always seems that and maybe that's part of what makes the the experience so unique in a way you know is this sort of very mixed changeable emotional uh, state as it were you know it, it yeah kind of, i think we yeah i think we we recognize how um how fragile our mm -hmm. joy is i would say that we know that it could be taken away at any point um and in this case it is and oh, and it yeah. ends on talking about the tragedy um that i think we feel that joy more intensely as a result Uh, we, we, I don't take, we, we always end up talking about this, Jacob, don't we, in, in many of these shows, is, is the queer experience that, that we all have in different ways, and they're all a facet of the same experience. And it, and it is, you know, we, at the beginning we talked about you know, the, the feeling in a queer space, which is kind of different to a feeling in any other space, and, and, and how it affects uh, uh, the way we are and the way we behave and the way we interact and our music and our photography and everything else we do. And it's kind of, it is kind of a, I can't, I'm going to a bit of a sermon here, sorry. <laughs> it is kind of one of those things which I think that, you know, somebody who is not part of the queer community ever has to deal with that in quite the same way. I mean, you may do if you have a, you know, if you're, if you're a minority, minority race or you're a traveler or something else but it it's that kind of thing that you're always you know you're always in a sense a bit separate from the, the everyone else because of you know who you are it, it's kind of an interesting mm -hmm. um, um, sort of you know uh, the way it influences our our music and and everything else we do yeah absolutely but i think the, the the beautiful thing about any any creation is there is there's some element where i mean we're trying to convey that feeling we're trying to like place that um emotion into some sort of performance or, or text or uh creative work and i guess at at best somebody from outside the queer community um might experience that and have any amount of insight at all uh, into it. But I think uh, it is, not, not to come back to it, the theme of today, that, that it's not for everybody and maybe intentionally, but like there's something also really important that uh, it maybe, maybe no one experiences it from outside the community um, with any sort of profound uh, interest, but those people who are uh, experiencing it that do get an intense amount of uh, response from it uh, is all I need. That's 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 great. Yeah, absolutely. We should listen to the last piece then. We should. Okay, so this is uh, preserved.
at the wooden deck in a dream the cats mewling from the upstairs window you pluck olives from a dish and await my response So we've we've listened to three of your pieces, and we've we've talked about how you write and how you create. Um, I wonder what what you think about the next stage of your um, writing process is. Like, what 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 are you not to say like what are you working on, but what are you working on? But like, how are you working on it? What's kind of uh, the next foray for you? What are you what are you working through? Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like there's so many things that I want to do right now. 
Um, a, a long-term project for me has been to write a queer chamber opera. Um, so uh, Matthew, bless his heart, has also given me uh, permission to work with his one-act play called The 3 a.m. Subtext, which is essentially two boys after a grinder hookup at 3 a.m., and they are exchanging ghost stories as a way of kind of unpacking their past trauma. Um, and so that's been a long-term project and still very long-term. Uh, but in the short term, you know, I, I have uh, another choral commission coming up, which is going to be on a, a queer subject. Um, I feel like I've, um, I mean, I, I'm sure all of us have had a, a really emotional response to the Colorado Springs shooting this past fall. And I felt a really intense desire to unpack those those feelings through my music. Um, so that choral piece will be one thing, but also just really um, eager to continue working with other singers on more art song and, um, and adapting more queer poets to music. You know, I've got a stack of <laughs> a whole bunch of uh, poetry books that I'm trying to get through right now of different things that I really want to make happen, different people that I really want to work with. Um, and um, and yeah, continuing on this trajectory of writing explicitly queer music and um, trying to tell these stories. Um, as I said before, you know, these have been the most gratifying experiences for me as a composer of getting to work with people um, on uh, on these projects and and getting to create music that I haven't heard and that I want to hear. Um, and uh, so I'm really just in the process of trying to create the opportunity that will allow me to continue doing that. Sounds great. I mean, I mean, we wish you all the success. I mean, it's been fantastic listening to your music and I'm certainly going to find some more of it and, and take a listen to it. And, and hopefully one day I might see a piece in it live. So that would be fantastic. We always we always say that and we're, all, we're always so far away from everybody. We, ne we can never actually get it, but it would be lovely. So I, I, honestly, it's been really a pleasure listening to your music, Stuart. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.